Welcome to Searching the Sacred. I'm Jason Steffenhagen. I'm Steph Spencer. And I'm Lisa Adams. We are hosting conversations about scripture for the curious, doubters, and hope seekers. We're inviting people to ask different questions, questions asked by those who have been wounded and hurt, questions asked by those who have deconstructed and are looking for a reconstruction. We're creating space for love, kindness, justice, and curiosity. We will wrestle, we will question, we will dance, we will dream, we will wonder, we will be frustrated, and we will hope. We aren't searching for singular answers or solutions. We are searching the sacred. Hey, everybody. Uh, Jason, Steph, and Lisa here, and we are continuing our exploration of women of the Hebrew scriptures outside of the Torah, because as we mentioned last week, if you are curious about daughters of the Torah, you should just sign up for the Roots group by going to 40orchards.org and becoming part of that group, because it would be awesome if your voice was a part of it, because as always, it's better when you're there. And so today we are going to be diving into the story of Hannah. This is coming from 1 Samuel chapter 1, and Lisa is going to be reading verses 9 through 18. Uh, And this is out of the Robert Alter translation uh, to keep things interesting. Good old Rob. Yes. And Hannah arose after the eating in Shiloh and after the drinking, while Eli the priest was sitting in a chair by the doorpost of the Lord's temple. And she was deeply embittered, and she prayed to the Lord, weeping all the while. And she vowed a vow and said, Lord of armies, if you will really look on your servant's woes and remember me, and forget not your servant, and give your servant male seed, I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life. No razor shall touch his head. And it happened as she went on with her prayer before the Lord, with Eli watching her mouth, as Hannah was speaking in her heart, her lips alone moving, and her voice not heard, Eli thought she was drunk. And Eli said to her, How long will you go on drunk? Rid yourself of your wine. And Hannah answered and said, No, my Lord. A bleak-spirited woman am I, neither wine nor strong drink have I drunk, but I have poured out my heart to the Lord. Thank not your servant, a worthless girl, for out of my great trouble and torment I have spoken till now. And Eli answered and said, Go in peace, and may the God of Israel grant your petition which you asked of him. And she said, May your servant but find favor in your eyes. And the woman went on her way, and she ate, and her face was no longer downcast. Okay. Well, we have a little segment there where it can be helpful to give a little backstory to why Hannah's upset, but I'm also curious about any sort of responses to what we just heard before we give that backstory. And when I ask questions like that, I'm just going to make a little podcast note. I'm hoping that also those listening are doing that same thing, like just pause and notice, did anything stick out to you? Did you kind of trip on anything? Was there anything where like, oh, I don't like that word or that feels weird. I wish that wasn't in the Bible. Or is there like a, huh, I liked how that sounded or that I would like to know more about that. Like just being in the practice of reading scripture, pausing and noticing what pops up as a question or a uncertainty or an insight is a good practice. So we tend to start there in the podcast too for all of us to just pause and notice. Um, I think I notice more clearly in this translation than maybe in my other translations, although I think it's there in all of them that like the, how she names herself, um, like, or that she's trying to say that she's not, or she is (laughs) a bleak spirited woman. And then, um, a worthless girl feels like that feels like just really strong language that I not a super fan of that language (laughs) so and they really stood out to me like the way the feminine is described um -hmm. message well that i was talking to someone recently about sort of the religious um practice that a lot of people have of lowering themselves in order to raise up god and how that can seem really holy But it also is problematic because like at 40 Orchards, we a lot of times use the word of co-creating. Like there's a way to raise up God while not lowering self. 
and to say like, this absolutely is something amazing that God is doing or something I'm asking for. And it is happening in and through me and my gifts and my initiative and my, and so then when I bump up against people, like you're saying, Lisa, where it's so low, it does sort of make me frustrated that Hannah's not seeing her own goodness here in this path. Like she's doing some amazing things in this passage. She'll do some amazing things in chapter two when she has this like theologically grounded, beautiful song and poem. And it's like, oh, does does she see herself as integral to the, to this? Does the writer see her as integral to this? It's really interesting because I actually heard the opposite. Mm-hmm. Um, I actually, when when this was read and as I'm kind of rereading it and thinking about it, I saw her as extremely bold because I'm, I'm, I'm trying to th- like put, put this in the context of the ancient Near East. Women are essentially property. They don't have rights. Um, she's clearly not viewed as someone who should be where she is. And she's, you know, almost like potentially desecrating the place that she's in even though what she's doing is pouring out her soul and praying for this thing. And I saw it both as tragic that she's praying for something so beautiful that she will just instantly, if she, if, if it, if it happens, she will essentially give it away. Right. Um, but yet when she's confronted about it, she has the courage to just say, no, I'm not what you think I am. I'm actually not this, um, you know, drunken woman. I'm not this worthless servant. Like I am, I'm something else. I'm pouring out my soul. Like I'm in, I'm in great distress. That's what's happening here. And I, I, I saw it as like a moment of standing up for oneself and wondering like how many other depictions do we have of women in the ancient Near East doing this? Um, and then to Eli's credit, responding positively to someone doing that, um, so I, I, I found that to be a really interesting part of what, what we're seeing, which maybe leads into the boldness of her prayer in chapter two. Well, maybe that's, maybe it's sort of a juxtaposition we're supposed to notice even that she's naming herself a servant, but she's not acting like a servant. And so is that, mm-hmm. um, you know, what does that say about her? Is it, a, is it sort of a strategic naming of that to say like, I'm doing something bold, but I'm doing something bold in humility. Right. Um, you, I hope you can see that in me and not judge the boldness for something other than what it is. Mm-hmm. And also just to comment on what you said a few minutes ago about like how we place ourselves, whether we humble ourselves to the point of, you know, lowering ourselves and elevating God. I think there's some people that may be listening that would be like, well, yeah, like God is to be one that we have awe for and that we are blown away by and that we, we, we glory in or we worship, we praise. And I think all of that is scriptural and it's there and 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 there and there's like a yes and amen to that. But from a biblical standpoint, for those that are curious, like where is Steph maybe even getting this idea that we're maybe not meant to lower ourselves? Um I was actually just talking to my dad about this the other day that Jesus prays in John 17 that that we like that the followers of Christ will be one as Christ and the father are one. Like may they, and it, like the, the, the actual scriptures, may they be in us as, as I am in you. And so there's an, there's, there's an elevation of the human that Jesus is doing, drawing us up into the Trinity, drawing us up into God and saying like, don't think of yourselves as so lowly that you can't actually change this thing. That's what, that's what the spirit, that's what the power of Christ is meant to do is meant to be this, kind of radical transformational agent of love in the world. So let's not lower ourselves to the point of being slime. Let's actually recognize what God is up to with us. Um, and and so I just wanted to mention that because I, I think it's easy to to not feel like, well, where is this in the Bible? And, and I think, well, Jesus just kind of clearly does it. But Well, and I would just add in for those who are coming from uh, or even even at this point of the story, being in the Hebrew scriptures about that, that that would go back to Genesis um, and the fact that humans are placed in the garden to work and to guard it and that we have a role to play in the creation that is coming forth. And God seems to be calling that out in humans. They're not just placed there to serve. They're placed there 
to work and to be creative and to put their own spin on something and that that is a part of who we're called to be in the world and so there's multiple places you can dig into that and it's it's yeah if if that's something that's tripping up it's probably helpful to pause there for a little bit and say what kind of humility is helpful and what kind of humility is actually causing me to not own my part in my own life mhm yeah yeah cuz humility can quickly become passivity mm-hmm. and i think if if we're called to be anything it's not called to be passive And we're also called to love ourselves. And sometimes it's a passivity thing. And sometimes it's a lack of self-worth thing, like couched in religious language that makes it feel right when it's actually harmful. Lisa, you've been deep in thought. Well, because I'm kind of like, you know, I think I've just met enough. um, (laughs) Um, There have been enough male pastors in my life who have claimed humility that I am like that's bullshit and so like I think I have a probably an I don't know like a maybe I kind of have a funky relationship with even the word humility and what that looks like and um because like there's and I and I think the word actually lends itself to that in some ways of like humiliation and like there's just a lot of different ways to engage in that whole thing i i think there's so few women stories in the bible that take um that take up space that it's hard to hold some of those in the complexity of what it is to be human and i think hannah might be one of those spaces where there's some complexity in what it means to be human both in the idea that like Hannah does some incredible work, but it may not actually be from like the healthiest space. Like she's spinning in a lot of things. There's a, does she actually know that that's part of the future? Like she can't read into her future. Um, And so I just, I kind of wonder about like, there's maybe a way of like some of the story being both, um, look at Hannah go <laughs> and other space of like, whew, sh- there's probably some practices that, um, that doesn't seem that probably is harmful or that doesn't feel, I don't know. It's Hannah's got a complicated story. Like it's like, I, we skipped over some of like the, those moments where it's like, it's like we're, you know, in verse two is like, Andy had two wives. So, Oh, Oh, there, now, now we got a little bit of some of the context of what Hannah's experiencing. Um, I don't know that anybody who's in a two-wife situation is like, oh, it's just great. Everything is so great. It's just uh, don't feel any type of inadequacy. Don't feel any type of compa- like competition and comparison and all the gross stuff that comes with sometimes when we don't feel great about ourselves. Or it makes us feel not great about ourselves. I don't know. Well, just to, um, I think let's go to verse 11 for a second, and then we'll go back to tell Hannah's story, but just for what you're saying about humility. So in, in the prayer, I don't remember how the altar translation had it, but in my translation, she asks about God, would you look on the affliction of your servant and remember me? But that word affliction there that she uses is the word oni, which comes from ana which is to be humbled and afflicted and bowed down. And so we're thinking about humility. She's using that word. And part of why it gets so complicated, I think the Hebrew captures it maybe better than the English does, is it ties affliction and humility and suffering and oppression into the same word Mm. and sort of causes that wrestle to be a part of it of how how does this character, how it can it be sometimes positive and how can it sometimes be negative and we really see that in the story of the israelites where the same word ana is used for how pharaoh treats them when they are enslaved in egypt in exodus 1 that they are oppressed and they are afflicted um but it's also a word used in deuteronomy 8 for why god fed them manna in the wilderness so that they would be humbled ana same word 
but there's a different intent and a different outcome, but it's come, it makes for, it holds the complexity of the story of what it is to operate in the world with humility and how connected that is to the suffering we've experienced and how that makes it tricky to say, when is this healthy and when is this unhealthy and how we're holding it and how we're living out what's from God, what's actually from oppressive forces in the world and not from God and we need to fight against it. And they, it's just allowed to be a messy word that holds those things together in Hebrew. And maybe that's the push in, is English. Let's make it messy. Let's hold how suffering, oppression, and humility are tied and how that has sometimes led to ugliness and sometimes led to beauty. Well, it's also interesting then the rooting of servant, maid servant, the language that she's using is also is a ma, which has the mem instead, but also rooted in some sort of humility of like what it means to be a slave. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. Forced humility is not great. Mm -hmm. Right. And this say there's a difference, but, and there's a way that perhaps this affliction and suffering and difficulty, this ana that Hannah's experienced has birthed something really powerful in her. That's made her willing to do these sacrificial acts, but also perhaps it's birthed some hard things in her that that really could have used from some, some modern therapy mm -hmm. to deal with. And, and we can wish that for the people in scripture that we encounter of like, Oh goodness, if only, if only modern mental health practices were around when you were alive, I wonder what your story could have been. And we can say both could be true of Hannah and many people in the scriptures. So part of that backstory of suffering for her is not only the multiple wives, but it introduces her in first Samuel one of being married to Elkanah and that, one wife is Hannah and the other wife is Penina and that Penina has children, but Hannah has no children. And not only is that true, but Penina pokes and prods and gives Hannah a hard time for the fact that she is the wife that bears children. The interesting dynamic on top of that is that it is the other wife and not Elkanah who pokes Hannah about that. So the verse right before verse, um, eight um, or verse in verse five it talks about how he loves hannah and in verse eight it, it says how he asks her hannah why are you weeping am i not better to you than ten sons and so there's this really interesting and complex dynamic in a, her story of what it is to be one of two wives what it is to have one of those wives bear lots of children while the other one doesn't and the relationship between those two and also the relationship between the husband and those two wives where he seems to love Hannah more. And how is that affecting Panina and how is that affecting Hannah? And there's just a lot to that household. Yeah. Well, and he gives double to Hannah. <laughs> like, it, I'm not trying to necessarily defend Panina, but there like the again, the complexity of being human, um, <laughs> and having two wives. <laughs> like I, like it. Sometimes it's so foreign, and yet it's not. There are people that have multiple wives, even today. Like I, how well, do you even navigate that? I mean, we're talking about a very harsh time, obviously, where we're looking at people as commodities. We're looking at it as like business transactions and you essentially have a woman who's producing a lot of heirs, right? A lot of offspring. You would think that that person would see themselves as, Hey, I'm the, I'm the one producing here. I deserve the accolades for that production. And yet you're favoring the one who is, not providing anything for you and we're just we're property here and i'd like to be treated like i'm the successful part of this and and so um i mean it's gross everything that i just said but also i can i can see the need to have empathy for what panina's you know experiencing because her life is tragic as well i mean horribly tragic mm -hmm. and and not only is it tragic but then she's not even seeing any of the extra that you would think her life deserves 
Well, and maybe where we can really see the emotions of that tragedy is in Genesis 30, because this isn't all that dissimilar from the narrative of Hannah and Leah. And Rachel. the way that Leah bears all the children, but Rachel, I'm sorry, Hannah and Leah, Rachel and Leah, <laughs> sorry, um, that Leah bears all the children, but Rachel is the one that Jacob loves and how, and we've, we can feel their emotions around that as they name their children, as they compete to give birth to more, as they're trying to vie for a place of value. And just, it's a very sad, it's a hard, I think Genesis 30 is a hard read. The naming of all those kids is a hard read. And to see how it ends up harming Bilha and Zilpa as they come in as, as womb slaves during that sort of interaction and just realizing how hard it would have been for both women and how hard it is for both women here inside of this system. Um, even even though Hannah's loved, it's there's something that's not enough. Even though Panina has children, there's something that's not enough. And how is the whole system putting in that place where it's just not enough because the system is flawed and you can only do so much inside this flawed system to help them be their truest and best selves. And I think it's easy for us that like want to like step back from scripture and just look at the big meta narrative and the big story that's being told. And this is just a preamble to get to Samuel, who's this great, you know, prophet, priest, you know, uh, leader, judge, what, you know, like Samuel, such a, such a, you know, kind of Mount Rushmore of, of the story. Um, that it's easy just to see this as like, oh, hey, don't worry about all this stuff because it leads to Samuel. And isn't that amazing? Like, and, and it's easy to do that. Um, and, and it is beautiful that Samuel was able to be the type of leader that he was. But that doesn't take away from the very real pain and the tragedy and the, and the horrible systemic violence that's done to women at this time. Because this is a story in scripture. Like we, we aren't just, you know, chapter one isn't, there was a woman named Hannah who had a son. She named him Samuel and then gave him over to the priest and he was raised in the temple. And then the Lord called him and off we go. That That's not how it's written. We have a whole chapter on this story, on this narrative, on this person. And it's, it's worthy to ask all these really hard questions. And if we don't, then I don't think we're doing justice to to what the scriptures are actually calling us to. Well, it reminds me in the in the New Testament about the space we do and don't give to Mary's story, because there's a lot of parallels between Hannah's story and Mary's story, and that they both end up giving birth to a child that's for this greater purpose that they kind of have to give away. And so it's both a gift and a struggle. That's the kind of how they're called to be in the world. But do we take the space to see them in it and not just the child they bear, but like what it took to bear that child, the, what led up to that child, what kind of faith they held to be chosen to bear that child. Um, and then in the, you know, in the Christian church, it's caused these divides between Protestantism and Catholicism for how we hold Mary. And for many of us who grew up in Protestant traditions, it means we haven't seen Mary enough because there was a sort of rebellion against seeing her story because of this fear of, of having her be a saint. But like, what is it to honor Mary's story, to honor Hannah's story, to say they're in the Bible for a reason. We're meant to see them. We're meant to see their faith. We're meant to see their humanity. We're meant to see them. And We're meant to see spirit. them in light of the systemic violence and tragedy that their story is found in. Mm -hmm. And it's still, I mean, that is still the lived experience for many women on this planet, right? Mm -hmm. In some ways, we're still, it's both far away from us and still happening right alongside of us. When I mean, that's where, I, when I see like the, when I think of the multiple wives as a part of a patriarchal system, it does feel like something that can be carried forward to say, how do patriarchal systems that are still in place today create cultures of scarcity for women where we end up fighting each other instead of helping each other or feeling like I wish I had what that person had and that person wishes they had what I had and it ends up feeling worse because of the system itself that we're inside of and how can we learn 
to do that differently, to fight the system instead of each other, to see one another's worth and value, to just how do we still get caught up in it feeling like a limited pie that we're fighting for pieces of? And why does it then work? That's when it, that's when the system works to keep women down. It's when we let it be that. And because it's hard. It's hard. When I was reading the text, it said that she, like she would do this year after year. So then I was like, okay. And then when I read in verse what verse three talks about like they would go up from his city yearly and sacrifice to the Lord of hosts in Shiloh. Which I was like, I don't, I feel like I don't talk a lot about like Shiloh or like where, what are they doing? Um, <laughs> it's like a, a rhythm, like where, what's happening? Lisa, that's exactly where I was going with the setting, which feels like okay. a, oh, look at that. <laughs> okay. <laughs> look at that synergy. So yes, Shiloh means place of rest. And in Joshua 18, after the people cross over and settle into the promised land, Shiloh is where they set up the tabernacle. And so this is the time period before a temple exists. A temple isn't going to be built until David's son, Solomon, builds a temple, which is a couple generations from now. So Samuel's going to anoint the king. So he's older than the kings. And this is about Samuel's birth. So this is the time period of tabernacle. The tabernacle is in Shiloh. And so it would be a part of the people's religious practices to go to the tabernacle during the three times a year festivals to sacrifice. Um, and in Elkanah's family, it seems to be the case that the whole family goes to sacrifice, which is an interesting little glimpse because by the time we get to like the days of Jesus and people going to that temple to sacrifice, usually it'd be like one representative of the household who would travel. And so we can kind of wonder about like, when was it, was it common at this time that whole families went? Was Elkanah kind of breaking with tradition or was it, you know, common that the whole family would go? But it seems like the whole family goes. And they're going to Shiloh to sacrifice, which means it's actually Eli who would be the one sacrificing, but they would be bringing a sacrifice for Eli to do. And as a part of those sacrifices, eating and drinking would generally be a part of that. So um, when we're thinking about ancient sacrifice, sometimes it feels really weird to us in a modern eye to think about it feels wasteful. And it's helpful to remember that the meat was not wasted. There were some times where there was like a burnt offering. There was some, there were a few kinds of offerings where the whole thing would be burnt up. But generally, it's like a barbecue with intention <laughs> um, of, of, okay, we're going to bring this animal and we're going to sacrifice it. And then we are all going to eat from it together. So like the peace offerings were actually very intentional shared meals with the offering as a part of, of recognizing and celebrating shalom. Um, the different sacrifices were done in different ways. Sometimes just the priest would eat of the meat sometimes, but, but eating and drinking then is a part of those festivals. And so this is as a part of this, as a part of one of those festivals, the whole family would go and year after year, Hannah would go and she would weep and she wouldn't eat of that sacrifice or of that as a part of that festival and tradition. These are the festivals laid out in either Leviticus 23 or Deuteronomy 16, if anybody feels nerdy and they want to look up the, the festivals and those rhythms. But we aren't told that it's a particular festival because no, the text will tell you like they're doing something for this. Right. It doesn't say whether it's Passover or whether it is um, Shavuot, which is first fruits, or whether it's Sukkot, which is like tabernacles or the fruit fruit festival. It doesn't tell us which one. Just and says it, they would go. We don't know the time of year either, like when this is happening. Right. Which, right, which means it doesn't give us the time of year for which one this is. But it does give us context to something that we kind of glance over at the modern lens because we don't realize that we're talking about a tabernacle and we're talking about a priest and we're talking about a time of sacrifice. So verse, um, verse nine, Hannah rises up after they eat and she prays. And as she prays in verse 12, Eli is able to see her. Okay. I'm going to pause there. Verse 9 told us where Eli was, which is sitting upon a seat by a post of the tabernacle. 
which is the word for post there. If I'm remembering correctly. It's mezuzah. Is mezuzah, which has a lot of connection to Passover, actually, <laughs> like putting stuff on the mezuzah. But it would, if it's doorposts like that, it would, it would lean, it, the interpretation would lean towards this being an inner post of the tabernacle, not an outer post of the tabernacle. So this gets into possibilities. It's not for sure. But if Eli is sitting at an inner post of the tabernacle, and if Hannah is going to a spot where Eli can see her in order to pray, where does that mean Hannah is? Potentially somewhere she's not supposed to be. Yes. You said that earlier, Jason. So I think you've seen that before. So, so we can glance over when we don't think of, when we think about this as being like a church or something like that, then it seems like Hannah's praying in a church. That's what we do in church. But this is not a time period where people pray in the, in the tabernacle. The tabernacle is for sacrifices and priests are the ones who do the sacrifices. So we don't know for sure exactly where, you know, which court she's in, but she should, and she should in theory only get as far as the court of women. <laughs> but it seems like she's going further in than that because Eli sees her and watches her. It's even possible through the other language here that she's going all the way into like Holy of Holies for this. Which and would make sense that he thinks that she's drunk, right? <laughs> right. If, she's, if she's going well beyond her place, quote unquote, right? then there's only a few reasons for it. And and the obvious one is she just happened to stumble in there and didn't really know where she was because anyone in their right mind would not have gone that direction. And so that's where we can say, okay, like why would she go in that direction? Like why would she be making her way into the tabernacle with her weeping and her prayer? Why is she going there with it? What is she doing with that? Why is she risking, you know, the further in she's going, the bigger risk she's taking that either God would smite her or Eli would kill her. Maybe, maybe that is it. Maybe I keep thinking of this imagery of not imagery. I don't even know what to call it. Like this is where the, like you said, this is where the sacrifices take place. It's almost like she's so fed up with what's been happening year after year after year after year that she's like, fine, I'm sacrificing myself. Like mm -hmm. here I am like, take me, whether you, whether the Lord smites me, whether Eli does what the priest maybe has every lawful right to do, or whether this actually is what's needed for something to, you know good to happen here it is mm -hmm. i'm offering i'm offering me but the language reflects that possibility um and when she's explaining to eli she says she's pouring out her she was pouring out her soul and the word pour out there is the word um sapak which is a word used for pouring out the blood of an offering and so she might even be alluding to yes eli i I wasn't drunk. I was pouring out my soul. <laughs> like that word used for pouring out the blood of a sacrifice. I'm using that word to describe what I just did with my soul, my nefesh, my being, my heart, my mind, all of it. I just poured it out and left it there for God to do whatever God does with it. And I think that really gets at the heart of, now for me, why there's such a beauty and power to this story because the way I I guess choose to enter in at the moment is that despite all of the systemic violence despite 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 all of the patriarchy despite all of the causation and and harm here she is saying I'm fully human and I'm pouring out my essence. I'm pouring out my being. That's my choice. That's my agency. And I'm not accidentally here. This isn't a mistake. This is me. And it's tragic as well as, I think, beautifully powerful 
at the same time. Hey everyone, this is Jason. We're about the halfway point of this episode. If you are not a patron of this podcast, I want to invite you to join Patreon and type searching the sacred. And for a dollar a month or more, you can become a patron of this podcast and get access to the afterthoughts. The afterthoughts are Steph, Lisa, and myself providing a little afterthought after the episode. And we want to invite you to share your afterthought as well in the comments. It'd be a great place where we can hear from one another as we continue to wrestle and journey with these wonderful stories that we read in scripture. How do we read that with, so when she, as a part of when she is pouring it out, the prayer, she, she vows this vow and I have mixed feelings about the vow that she vows because it feels a little bit vending machine to me um, when we vow a vow and that that ends up turning into God giving us what we asked for. And there's a way to read it that she's she is asking for something beautiful here and it is pouring out her soul to offer it because basically what she's saying is if you give me a child, I will give the child back to you. So this thing I want most, I won't keep for myself. I will have it be um, for more. I will have it be like if no razor is coming upon his head, then I'm making a Nazarite vow for this child to belong to the tabernacle and for you to raise this child and not me. So it's like it means I'm sort of committing to never get what I want because I can't actually raise this child. Um, But I'm also seeing a bigger future for that child or for God's purposes for that child. Um, But it feels, and so that does feel like you're pouring out your soul. If you're making a commitment like that, you are, you are weeping, you are pouring out, but I, I kind of, I kind of don't like that. It works. If that makes sense. Like, even if it's authentic, which I think it is, we have a reason to believe that it's authentic. I don't want to believe that that's what it takes for God to honor our pain. A hundred percent. And so I'm, I'm both moved by her strength and bothered by it theologically. Mm-hmm. That after she prays like this, then God opens her womb feels I'd like, I don't love that picture of God. Is that, you know, it's that crazy. Um, It actually feels like it has some resonance with like sometimes how we try to make sense of things. And it depends on what side of the thing you're on. Like mm-hmm. if you're a person who's been praying for a long time or you've been in a lot of, I you just think in the world of addiction that you pray for somebody to like break out of that. When it happens, do you say, oh, it had nothing to do with my prayers. <laughs> it had nothing to do with. Or, but we kind of do link it and like for everybody who prayed for me or for every, it's an interesting way that we, um, is it, <laughs> it's, oh, I don't know. I don't even know. I, I feel like probably this is the complicated relationship that I currently have with prayer of uh, both. Like I can read a text and I can see where we say like, Oh, well they prayed and then God did something. And that feels like how that works. Like not necessarily that God does what we want us want God to do but does God answer prayers do we have a relationship where we could ask for something and potentially change God's mind does that happen for everybody hell no like we all know that that's not like that's not it either so like how do you make sense out of something that just doesn't make sense and if you're trying to explain a story like for Hannah when Hannah talks about this story that might be how Hannah would describe this is what it felt like I don't know that it makes it any like a wrong story, but it's a it's a hard story if you're somebody who has prayed like Hannah, and you have not got the outcome that Hannah got. I love your focus on timing there, because the the real danger probably is if you look at someone in, in their suffering and say, "Well, you should pray like Hannah prayed." Mm. That's like the red flag of like that is not what this passage is. This is passage is telling a story in hindsight about how something really painful became something beautiful and the person that that it always feels different in hindsight and it always feels different when you were the person telling your own story in hindsight mm. than somebody else putting that on you yeah i mean i think this is like a good example of like when something is maybe descriptive 
as opposed to prescriptive. Like we're not prescribing this as a do this, do this, do this, and then this happens. But it's mm-hmm. describing very real human energy, tragedy, pain, messed up theology. Like, you know, it's being written down in a time of exile and told over, you know, like as a way of God, you know, shaping a nation, you know, like it, it's it's got a bigger trajectory. You know, there's so many complicated layers to this that are describing something, not 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 per se prescribing like when your child gets sick, this is what you do. Or when you want something to happen, here's the kind of vow you should make. Um, you know, yes, in hindsight, you may describe it similarly. <laughs> um, like Lisa said, like you both said, uh, but I don't think it's a prescription for how we navigate hard, hard times. And it is worth wrestling with how prayer does affect how we navigate hard times. And to Mm -hmm. say like, sometimes Mm -hmm. there are mysteries to that, that at a certain point, like I was just, I was just talking about this with someone in my own story, because like prayer feels different now than it did 10 years ago for how my faith has shifted. And yet I can still name stories of like just this summer, I was um, going to a conference and I was um, knowing that that some promotion for my Enneagram book that I wrote was going to be a part of what was going on at that conference. And I was just journaling about it. And what I was journaling about it was that I didn't want it to be weird. I didn't, and I didn't want to be weird about it. I didn't want to have this striving, trying salesman kind of energy. And so it was sort of a prayer, but it was sort of also just an intention to take a posture of openness and receiving and to like, and I, and, and so part of what I think happened was actually how it shifted me. Like it wasn't like God do this. It was help me be this way. And in that help me be this way, intention, prayer, whatever you want to call it, it was that way. And I wonder how that's also a part of the story sometimes when we can't like how, I don't know if that feels any different than what we've already said, but, but it, it just leaves space for there to still, no matter where we are in faith and prayer to say, are there some mysteries to what happens that we can leave room for? Um, and see and have the courage to see and have the courage to open ourselves towards. Cause I think what happens is one of my responses that was like instantly like defensive about verse 11 and the prayer that she prays is that I find it very dangerous to hope. I find it very dangerous to pray the kind of prayers that are actually really asking for something because that's when it feels most likely that God's going to disappoint me. Mm. And so for me, part of it here is to say, what, what am I holding myself back from at this stage of my life and faith and prayer that I could learn from Hannah to just risk and to pray it. So Eli is watching her pray, but Eli thinks she's drunk. In verse 15, how does Hannah respond to that accusation? Fifteen and sixteen. He says, No, my lord, I am a woman deeply troubled. I've drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but have been pouring out my soul before the Lord. Do not regard oh. your servant as a worthless woman, for I have been speaking out of my great anxiety and vexation all this time. How could she have responded to Eli's accusation? I mean, if she's not where she's supposed to be, she could have just said, oh, I'm so sorry, and then just ran. Depending on how you feel about power, like, that's the priest, that's the big, that's the big power player at this time. So how do you, how do you engage with big power? Hmm. Well, because that's the, that's the thing we can, um, what we can easily not give Hannah the credit for is that she is speaking to a person in power with confidence. And so she could have, like Jason said, she could have just run away from that. 
or she could have toned it down. But she really stands in that accusation with, no, I was doing this. Well, and and to Eli's credit, <laughs> like Eli, he feels a little gentle. Like, I, I mean, he is calling her out, but he's not, you know, it almost feels like he's got a little bit of curiosity. Like there's a little bit of like, what is it? Like, what's, what is happening here? Like, the only explanation he has is that she's drunk, but then when she's not drunk, like, what? Okay, then that feels different. So there's something actually, I mean, it's interesting that, like, we don't really know a lot about Eli. <laughs> like, he's, his story starts here. I don't know, but it feels... It goes downhill pretty fast in the book of First Samuel, but it's not so bad here. <laughs> Yeah, well, he's got some. He's got some sons. <laughs> some stuff. <laughs> okay, so so let's take that into consideration for a second. We know that his sons are not following the way of the Lord, and yet we're at a time period where your occupation is basically determined by the family that you're born into. So these sons of his are supposed to be the next priests of the tabernacle, but they're terrible at it. Um, and so here he is presiding over the tabernacle day after day after day after day. And he's got two sons that are terrible at it and have don't want anything to do with it and are actually making it worse. And here he is sitting there and this woman comes in. He thinks she's drunk. And instead she's like, absolutely not. I am pouring out my soul and I need God to show up now. I mean, at some point, there's a part of me that's like, I wonder if he's like, Ooh, this is fun. Don't see this very often. You know, like there's like a, like a, my gosh, like maybe this thing is real. Um, you know, I wonder where his hope is for where things are going. And maybe this is a sign to him that, you know, maybe I am a part of something that is really dynamic. And I love what he says to her in verse 17. So, um, Go in peace is what our translations tend to say. But the word is yalak, which is go, but it's also walk. Um, and then peace is a word we've talked about on this podcast <clears throat> before, which is um, shalom, um, which is about peace, but it's also about wholeness or completeness or repair. And so you can translate what he's saying more like walk towards wholeness and repair. Mm -hmm. Gosh, it's so much better than just go in peace. Right. <laughs> I hate that, that translation, go in peace. Yeah, oh, okay, what does that even mean? But when you say go walk in wholeness and repair, now now that's saying something. Yeah, and I think, yeah, pausing to give him the credit of like, oh gosh, maybe that's, well, you're a pastor. Maybe that, maybe that change, maybe that's what you start saying to your congregation. Because a lot of pastors will say go in peace. This becomes a thing that's repeated. But it, it's very powerful to look at someone and say, walk in and towards wholeness and repair, like move towards that, accept that, like whatever that is for you. It's a good thing to say. Yeah. As she walks away, she says in verse 18, she asks to find in the altar translation, it said um, favor in your sight. Um, my translation says grace um, to find grace in your sight. So the word is hen, um, which we get all these Hebrew words that have the good like. Um, but in the word hen, the reason that that matters, well, there's lots of reasons it can matter, but her name is Hannah. So the name of this woman is a name noun form of the word grace. Mm. And so we can kind of wonder some things about what grace means when we look at kind of that she's asking for grace from Eli, but also if her name is grace, how might that give us sort of a human picture of what grace looks like and what grace means and whether that's something different or, or more expanded than how we've thought about it before. I don't have a good like ending question there, except I want to think about us <laughs> together. Like, 
what is she doing? How is she in the world that might shift how we think about what grace is and isn't? Because I believe, I'm just going to add to this, I think she's the only person in scripture who has that name. So the the verb for showing grace is Hanan, and her name comes from that. I think that does a few things for me. Um, so if I'm putting my evangelical hat on that I grew up in, grace was always this thing that we prayed for and weren't responsible for. It was that gift of God that is just like we say the prayer, we we follow these instructions, and then we're going to get to go to heaven one day with Jesus because grace. And it's it's kind of like a get out of jail free card in a lot of ways, or get out of hell free card, and also like a get out of consequences free card. Like, but now that I'm going to heaven, like consequences don't matter at some level. I mean, they do, but they don't, right? I mean, it, it's that whole well, they're saved, so you know, thank God they'll be in heaven one day. Um, whereas if we look at it through the lens of like Hannah and what she's experiencing, who and who she is, especially in that moment that grace is something that we respond to with our whole being and it's something that we enter into and we now see as a new trajectory for who we are and how we go about doing life and so it's it is both this wonderful posture that god has towards us but it's also our, in return, our posture towards what God is up to. It's interesting that the word before is that is to find grace, not mm-hmm. receive grace. Because I think in a lot of ways, like mm-hmm. that, that Christian thing is like you just—it's a free gift. Take it, yep. <laughs> receive it. And in this one, it's that you find it. Mm-hmm. You have to look for it. That maybe it's, um, and there's something in it, like, it's not that she has it at the moment. It's like, she's, it's, it's in process. <laughs> like she's hoping to find it. Which is actually not to like be all overly evangelical and then not, but like, the Greek translation of the New Testament's really bad in a lot of ways because it doesn't hold the nuance of what the language is trying to say. So a lot of times when it talks about salvation in the New Testament, it's, you know, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And yes, for by grace you have been saved. Okay, that's actually a really bad translation because it's not a past tense, you were saved one day, thank God for grace, you know, and now, you know, whatever. Instead, it's, like for by grace you are in the process of being saved like it's something that's always been in existence and it's still going um and our contemporary minds don't wrap our, the, our, our ourselves around that very well because we want things to be concrete and we want to have assurance as opposed to being in process we don't like there being this ambiguity of like well am i saved or am i not saved well you're in process well what does that mean you know what well, means you're human right and it, and it means that god's not done yet um, but we don't we don't find that to be very comforting, so it's easy just to translate it with the past tense. Whereas, like you said, we're finding it, we're involved with it, we're flowing with it, we're in process with it. It's happening to us. It didn't just happen to us. Or, you know, it's this. It's existing with us. Um, it's more dynamic than we give it credit for. Which. I actually love one of the uh, words for grace, like even the the, tra- the spelling of her name matches the spelling of a word related to grace, which is hana, and it's to encamp or to bend down. And I love when we think about like, what is something concrete we can grasp onto here? It's the word for setting up camp. Hmm. It's the word for being able to dwell because you found a place to pitch your tent. And there's an action there that is also a feeling together and it's taking place. It's something that's done, but it's also something that's ongoing to say, if I think about 
myself as a nomadic person who's been walking all day and then finds a place to pitch my tent, there's a feeling to putting that tent peg in the ground. And, and that is a picture of grace. It's a related word in Hebrew to say, like, what is that to encamp and to know where to encamp and to like put my tent peg here and to recline into this, to accept it, but also to take the actions that are a part of accepting it in that setting up camp sort of visual and the dwelling and the abiding that becomes a part of that. I think that's such a powerful imagery, especially if we were to ask the question, where do we see humans setting up camp <laughs> right now? Because I think we see a lot of people setting up camp in the campground of fear or the campground of vengeance or the campground of winning or the campground of um, power as opposed to the campground of grace. And that is such a different way of existing in the world. Makes me think about like, where is, how would Hannah define what her, define what her campground is? Like, where is she putting down her tent pegs? What is she resting into? Because if grace is the act of resting into it, what do we actually name that thing that we're resting into? Is it love? Is it hope? Is it yeah? I think it takes Hannah some time. Mm. Like the like her story doesn't end there, but the, we don't get a lot of details in like how long did it take for her to have Samuel, and then it takes time as she raises them and puts them into the temple service or whatever. I don't whatever long whatever she does mm-hmm. later son. Mm-hmm. I mean, it takes a while for her to actually do chapter two. Mm-hmm. Right. And I think that's, I mean, I think that's all part of it. Like in some ways we think, I don't know. I feel like that was the, when you grow up in side of the church and that's the only thing, you know, you feel like that's what you're just supposed to, like you were just like, you know how some people feel bad because they don't have like this transformational story that they accepted Jesus in their hearts when they were four. And that was just all that. And it was boring. <laughs> It's been a delightful life, but just kind of boring. And I sometimes think we miss some of that nuance. I th- eventually it usually comes. Something hard happens, something that doesn't fit into the thing. But it, like with Hannah, we get to see, like, we don't start with, like, Hannah doesn't have that song before. Hannah has the song after. Like, I feel like, as you talked about, like, her theology, we get to see a little bit of probably, like, what is she putting what she found at her, at her campsite. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I, think it, I was going to say, I think, I think it kind of starts with what she did right before too, that sets up for grace is that she poured herself out. She emptied herself. She said like, this is it. This is all of me. I'm, I'm sacrificing it. I'm giving it. I, I, I'm, I am begging for this. And, you know, I, I don't, are we able to really experience the fullness of grace or live into the calling of grace if we're still holding on to something other, you know, that's grabbing at us, you know, can we be divided? Um, and that's not to say that we're not a responsible parent or we don't like, you know, like I'm not trying to be all weird about that, but like, um, but I mean, she poured herself out and then she's like, okay, Let's do this. Let's figure out who we are now. I think sometimes when you're in the midst of those things, though, it doesn't feel like you're choosing to pour yourself out. Like it's all you have left. Like you're right. forced into it almost. Mm-hmm. It, like it feels like that way. I think when when I think about, there's only been a couple of times in my life where I felt like I poured some stuff out, but those are very much moments that did not feel like I had any type of control. Mm-hmm. It, like that i i didn't get to choose to be there i was there <laughs> like it, you're in it mm-hmm. and so i there's a i mean maybe you can come to it on your own like there's room for that but there's also something about life and lived experiences that 
it's the heart that brings you to some of those spots. And even then, oh, there's just got to make space for the people who don't get the thing, who don't get the answer, who don't get the, that you can pour it out. Mm-hmm. And then you're just left poured out. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that sucks. that's when you need a community. That's when people have to show up. Like, yeah. Maybe that's the action is you just leave it open for it to be whoever. Well, maybe that's, I mean, just, that leads me to another thought about grace, which is if it's connected to setting up camp, then it's communal. Mm. We tend to think of it as very individual, but like mm-hmm. in the story of the people, they're setting up camp together. So part of finding a place to put your tent pegs is putting your tent pegs next to someone else's camp tent and what is it, how is grace related to community support, not just a gift from God, but the way we help and see each other um, and what what that might be. Um, so I think, um, you know, it's always good as we're closing podcast episodes to think about what we want to remember or think about or do. That's how we close every scripture circle. Sometimes we really talk about those together um, here. And sometimes it's really just something for listeners to think about like, okay, there's, there's more here. There's more here that we haven't talked about. We haven't talked about all of the beautiful words from her song in chapter two that parallel or mirror all of Mary's words in Luke one and what it is to see Hannah and Mary together. Um, So maybe you want to dig into that. Maybe you want to dig into your understandings of grace. Maybe you want to make space for soul being poured out and being answered or not being answered or how we think about prayer. Um, but I wonder for the three of us, like if there's any like couple words that we would say, it's like something we want to hold on to from today's conversation. I think there's a lot to hold on to. Um, but I think that last point that you made about this isn't meant to be an individual thing, but it's meant to be a communal thing. And so I guess for me, the challenge is to ask the question, am I showing up or how am I showing up for the Hannahs of the world? Um, You know, how can I be Hannah, but also how can I show up for Hannah? Um, Because I would never want someone to be Hannah alone. I'm I'm thinking about grace being the action of putting those tent pegs in the ground because I took this three week national park camping road trip this summer. So I just we set up camp a lot, <laughs> and I just don't know what it is to be an ancient person and have that actually be my experience of home. <laughs> just set up camp, but I do like I feel like it's a good time to think about that feeling of putting those tent pegs in the ground and what it is about that feeling and that action. That's a different understanding of grace. Cause I feel like part of what happens with a word like grace is we have so many differing definitions about what it means. It's really hard to enter in to the Hebrew and what the Hebrew is saying, because we're already thinking lots of things about the word. Mm-hmm. And I feel like this act of recapturing something before all of the definitions we've put on it is an ongoing thing for me. And so just thinking about what is that, what is that action of putting putting a tent peg in the ground and how is that related to how we see ourselves and how we see God and how we live our lives? Um, I think what I'm thinking about <laughs> is that I just, I encounter a lot of women who are kind of at poured out situations of their life. I think um, some of the sobriety that happens while they're incarcerated and when they're removed from their life for a minute, creates this space of like reflection and dangerous hope. Um, And just trying to, I think for me, thinking about what it means to bear witness to that. um, And I think about for a lot of the women who have um, found a way to connect to their faith and like their faith is a, an, intricate part of their plan for releasing back into community what does it look like for a 
church to welcome them? Um, like, how do we actively welcome people back into our communities? And like, take risk with them because <laughs> um, it's risky in all the in all the places. Um, but I just, I there are a lot of women who would feel familiar. Like the story, like parts of the story would connect pretty deeply about being poured out. Um, bowing some vows and recognizing like we don't really do that alone it's really hard to do it alone so how do we build a community around that so say I saw that vow I see that vow let's let's work on it together instead of like judging them as they come through the door This has been a 40 Orchards podcast. At 40 Orchards, our mission is to create circles for all people to wrestle through biblical text so that together we can expand each other's experience of what is sacred, whole, and good. We search through the lens of sacred possibility, assuming there is more to be discovered, questioned, and applied as we listen for how God is still speaking. You can learn more about 40 Orchards and sign up for a study by going to 40, that's 40orchards.org. Our opening music is by Less FM. Our closing music is by NCR Music Vibes. Additional music is by 3Music. Any references to books or other sources can be found in the show notes of this episode. Thank you for searching the sacred.